At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Joining us today is Dean Data Clothier, a retired United States Air Force Colonel who is now the Director of Joint Cyber uh, Campaigns and Survivability at the Cyber and Information Solutions Unit uh, of Northrop Grumman's Mission System Sector that sponsors our weekly podcast. Uh, Data, great to be talking again and, uh, and even better to have you on the program. It's great to be here. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. I want to start with the Log4j uh, vulnerability. Obviously, that's a Java logging library uh, that unfortunately includes uh, code uh, that now will, you know, or, or now has been evidenced to allow hackers uh, to be able to easily access vast uh, numbers of servers across cyberspace, including, uh, uh, you know, national security related ones as, as well as not. And as you know, uh, the data that's on these is, is all uh, conjoined. Uh, the code is ubiquitous, right? So, you know, there could have been uh, hostile actors who produced this code knowing that it you know, is really good and people will include it in their software. Unfortunately, that's how it works. Uh, and, and we're seeing by the news coverage that this could be a giant vulnerability. John Cofrancesco of Fortress Information Security joined us on Monday's program to, to talk about the magnitude of this challenge and, and how long uh, remediation is going to take. You know, it's been a couple of days since John joined us. Um, you know, how, how big of a challenge is this? How does it impact national security? How does it impact Northrop Grumman? And, and what's the right way to start remediating something you know, of this magnitude that, that shows that actually vulnerabilities could be right under our noses. Uh, and it's and it's not until an academic somewhere or Minecraft spots it that it's brought to our attention. Yeah, so it's certainly widespread. We're not going to know how widespread for a while, but, you know, all indications are that, um, you know, Java is, is widely used. This is a common, widely spread um, uh, library component in, in Java applications. Um, you know, across the industry, it's Apache um, web server is has issued multiple iterations of that uh, to close this vulnerability first to, to stop it and then ultimately remove it. Um, and and you know the LAMP servers are the most power like eighty percent of the world's web servers, so of the entire internet. So we're we're seeing something that's widespread, um, and we'll continue to see that. Um, more and more applications will discover their vulnerability. Um, I think we'll get at this a little faster than we did. This is comparable to the Heartbleed um, vulnerability discovered and exploited in 2014, um, which had a you know an open SSL TLS vulnerability that was widely used and proliferated. I think um, we're learning a little faster because of that experience that lots of software that we assumed that we used didn't say, um, you know, it had this component in it, so we assumed it didn't. Um, you know, I was running cyber defense for um, 
the Air Force and then the Joint Force during that, um, that Heartbleed um, discovery and then remediation work. Um, and so that process of, of how do you know what's vulnerable? Because if I list down my list of software, I don't see Heartbleed right. uh, or, or anything else. And the same thing's going to happen with, you know, does my software use Java components? I have no idea. I'm just a user. Um, so I think out of that, um, for instance, Heartbleed still had a significant vulnerability footprint out in the wild as late as 2019. So five years later, there were still um, a large number of vulnerable systems in the U.S. Um, so that sort of gives you that sort of um, maybe we'll be really fast and this will only be a, an important vulnerability that from a perspective of being exploited um, for another two years. But I mean, that would be fast. Um, and so that gets us to think about um, what we learned out of Heartbleed, which is, do you know what's in your software? There's been a, a proliferation of software composition analysis tools that have gone out, um, that have been developed. So rather than waiting for vendors to declare what components are in their software, there's now a, a, a whole set of, of software, a, a class of, of solutions that, that pull that out and find it itself without you know, the cooperation right. vendors. And then that's, you know, the emerging software bill of materials that you should, you know, know and maintain what's there. But ultimately, if you're waiting around for a patch, um, then, then you're really in, in, a, in sort of a, a tough place. So things you have to think about is, do you know the end of life of security for each of your components? Because you should, in IT and hardware, but especially software, you should know when end of life is. Um, and track it because that that um, sort of conveys or, or denotes where you have a growing and, and unbounded risk in your um, in your enterprise because it's no longer supported, so it can no longer be closed. Even if the the patching or the component relinking is trivial, that'll that'll um, if that's not being done by the the vendor, then you've got to do it yourself. So we've seen. Um, that for the most critical systems, that if you're not running um, a DevSecOps software factory with the Agile release train, that you can, you know, ingest code, um, patch code immediately yourself, and close vulnerabilities. That's really what's key for the most critical systems. But you're still, you know, once these kind of vulnerabilities get out, there's a race condition between attackers and defenders, right. and defenders have to close an entire enterprise. And, and all the, the applications and that even the fastest, best take time. So that leads back to a multi-layer defense architecture. Um, you, you can't be counting on, you know, one magic um, boundary defense or one magic um, application micro-segmentation to right. be your best line of defense. That, that idea of, of a strong multi-layer um, cyber defense architecture is also key to to, in the case of, of Log4j, um, close the egress that it, it depends upon to bring mal uh, you know, malicious code back in to execute. So, so egress filtering, which is underdone um, across the industry um, and, and some other endpoint security and, and UEBAs to, to sort of identify and manage risks that you miss while you're in this you know, race condition of, of hardening, re-hardening your enterprise. 
Let, let me um, well, pull on uh, two separate threads of this and then tie it. You know, you, you and I were scheduled to uh, talk about um, JADC2, right? And how to secure the combat cloud effectively, right? I mean, the data that this is uh, all uh, supposed, uh, supposed to carry. But you mentioned the S-bombs, right? Which is uh, the bill of materials, right? To, to, to be able to have some certitude um, on the provenance of the code uh, that, that's going into your products, right? And, and I think, you know, across the industry, that's uh, been, a, been a challenge, right? I mean, even on the national security sides, uh, you know, we, we've got chips, for example, that might be Chinese chips. It's just that they've gone through so many different suppliers uh, that, that they eventually have a part, you know, a part number on it uh, that might belie the vulnerability, right? It, it might be stamped with a leading prime contractor's name on it. And it's like, hey, holy cow, you know, that, that, that chip might have a vulnerability in it. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But what have we learned in each of these sort of vulnerabilities, right? I mean, you said that, you know, you mentioned Heartbleed and how much faster we're moving now than, than we were moving even a, um, a couple of years ago, right? When we find that with these ransomware cycles uh, and other revelations, whether it's solar winds, backdoors or anything else, that, that we're starting to move faster, right? What's the order of magnitude speed increase and how much faster and better at this game do we have to get uh, given that, right? I mean, as, as you said, between detection and closure, there is a window of extreme vulnerability there that that not you know just nation states, but, but a lot of other actors may be seeking to exploit, right? Whether for ransomware purposes or just mayhem purposes. Right, so the way that we think about this in Northrop Grumman is levels of performance. So cybersecurity traditionally has talked about, um, have tried to engineer to a solution um, and they engineer it once, and then by exception, they may look at it and, and sort of decide when they need to upgrade it. But, but the idea of, of engineering to a set of controls that, that each stand on their own, that you integrate at the end, um, and, and levels of risk like high, medium, and low, um, you know, all of that's necessary um, to build, you know, cyber secure security into your enterprise in the same way that you know, mortar and bricks and, and two by fours are necessary to build a house. But um, do you need to build a castle or do you need to build a shack? And so that idea of um, for different applications, different mission applications or, or critical IT infrastructure um, that performs, you know, um, critical or enabling services, what is how secure, how survivable does it need to be? And so one of the key questions we ask is survivable against who secure against what, resilient against what. Um, and so we use those three different words very precisely and very differently. Um, the DOD talks about survivability against different tiers of nation state actors, because frankly, they have big differences in their relative capability. So, um, but, but there's this sort of common, um, do you wanna be protected from, you know, uh, hackers that can, right, just script kitty guys who, who want to compromise a Minecraft server in the case of log4j, then, then there's a certain level of, of um, security that functionality that you need into your system. And there's some level of, of updates and or notice responses that you need. But, but that idea of what is the tier of capability that you need is the first important question to ask um, secure against what, survivable against who is that next. And then you get into different levels of architectures in the same way that you would have a, 
you know, a hut or a house or a business or a castle or a fortress. Um, and so that, that mindset of, of cyber defense, um, which cyber defense is the word that we use to incorporate cybersecurity and resilience and survivability all together in, in sort of an interoperable way or interdependent, interrelational way is important. So that speed of execution in the race condition um, is driven by what do you want that thing to be survivable against? So um, yeah, again, so that tier of, of script kitty all the way up to, you know, um, Russian nation state actors um, sort of drives um, how fast you need to go. Right. What are the speed lessons we've learned, right? As you said, we're moving faster in terms of um, how we respond and how we close these vulnerabilities. How are you driving the speed margin, right? Uh, as, as we work through these cycles, because as, as, as you said, right, you're, you're a little bit at the mercy of the, the developer being able to help you with this, right, to be able to deliver that patch. Uh, unless you have a capability to be able to patch it yourself, right? So, so walk us through the speed part of this, because you know adversaries are getting more clever. We're getting more clever at defense, but there are still windows of vulnerability here that that might last longer than than we'd like, even if we're doing better, right? We're, how do you, how do you drive the speed part of it, and what are the lessons we're learning in each one of these intrusions that are allowing us to move faster? Yeah, so first, I think we've got, um, you know, the number of CVEs, um, common vulnerability enumeration alerts that come out now, um, you know, we've got tens of thousands that are, are now coming out each year. Um, and so that ability to um, have services that sort of highlight those, if you can have that kind of what I would call threat flagging, which then has the, the severity scores, the CVSS that says, how bad is this? Um, those two things together, along with your um, SBOM, so you know, what do I have in my software? Then you can queue it off the vulnerability alerts, you know, characterize it to the severity scoring, and then you, your ops team knows, what do I have to pay attention to right now? Um, and that allows you to defeat the exact, you know, the, the specific mechanism um, that it's depending on at that moment. Something that, frankly, is fairly easy for an attacker to change, but it will, they're working at still human speed. Um, and they're, you know, depending on the attacker, they, they have a, an attack profile of who are they gonna go after first? Something we call structural incentive. What, what kind of hacker is going after what kind of targets? So there's sort of this immediate ops response that you just wanna make sure that you can, you know, for these high severity um, vulnerabilities with exploits in the wild, that you know how to um, defeat it, and that every time you, they change, you can again tweak the the defense architecture of your or defense system, whether that's a weapon system, or a mission system, or critical infrastructure, or or a critical enterprise system. That that basically you can defeat the mechanisms, and you can stay keeping them at bay. And really, that that's really your you've got a seventy two hour window. Um, Unless you, unless they're coming after you first, which gets into the higher tier stuff, but um, the highest tier stuff. But if they're not coming after you first, you really got a, a seventy-two hour window to to aware to be aware of that, see the severity, decide how it Im impacts you, take responses, and and up tune your monitoring of that stuff. Then after you got that initial sort of um, 
you know, layer, now you're into what you'd think about as, as two-week cycles for, for patching, um, depending on the size of your enterprise, depending on how um, code dependent you are or involved. Um, you think about sprint cycles of every two weeks um, and, and what's my degree of, um, of, of closure. Now, if you're dependent on someone else to patch stuff, right, then, <laughs> then, then there's a, you know, a key element that's out of your control. Um, but, but anyway, that's, and that's how you think about, um, security support and who you choose as software vendors based that that needs to be one of your criteria, but, but even like, you know, Microsoft exchange server that we saw that, that big vulnerability last year or earlier this year, I mean, um, vulnerabilities happen because, you know, that's just sort of the nature of, of human work in coding. Um, so how good is their their response mechanism and how, what level of service can you expect on those? So anyway, that's that's some key thoughts. Um, let me let me take you to Jadzi too. Right at, at the end of the day, it is going to be um, a cloud network uh, that is going to be the key enabler, not not just for U.S. forces. If we get this right, uh, I know uh, that the Jake, uh, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, is is working this in terms of getting the data protocols. Uh, right on it, right? I mean, I think we have a tendency of not recognizing that that the sum of this is actually moving faster uh, than than people uh, sometimes uh, cynically like to think it is. Uh, what what is the right mindset from from your standpoint to have as as we architect this system? Because um, right, everybody has a multiplicity of different solutions in this ecosystem. Uh, but what is, from, from your standpoint, the right way to make sure that you have this combat cloud that is the most secure it can be and the most resilient it can be, uh, given that it is going to become arguably the most contested piece of real estate on the planet? Yeah, so to start, you know, anytime that we do, um, we start connecting um, pieces of, of military weapon systems, platforms, critical infrastructure together, right? We intrinsically um, increase our, our vulnerability or risk. There's, there's no way around that. Um, so we would want to make sure that before we did that, that um, there was a lot of value um, to doing that. Um, I think that, that the DOD has been on a long march um, to understand that um, if you want a rapid, responsive, flexible force, um, that can tackle a lot more um, challenging environments and, and adversaries with a higher success rate and lower casualty rate. This idea of sort of network-centric warfare has been around for a while and it's been called some different things, but the idea that everyone's sharing tactically relevant data at tactically relevant speeds just changes the way that you fight. Um, certainly I saw, I personally witnessed the, the idea of when I started my um, flying electronic warfare career, the idea that you would do anything more than voice comms to somebody else or, um, was sort of nice to have if it worked uh, to the point where, you know, you, you go all the way through the time that we started more or less into continuous warfare after Allied Force um, in 98, all the way through when we pulled out of Afghanistan at the, this last piece. Um, we saw this, this march towards, if you're not in the tactical networks um, as a platform, you're not really in the fight. I mean, you're, 
you're physically there, but are you, your ability to respond and, and, um, and make good choices to, to change outcomes of tactical battles, whether on air or ground, um, and to an increasing, you know, spot space, um, has fundamentally changed. Um, so this idea of, you know, for a long time, that was like Merc chat that we would, you know, drop into aircraft with MRSAT terminals and, and someone would just have that sitting beside their um, cockpit display um, strapped to the, to the bulkhead because the information was valuable and helped us do a lot more things. But I think that that's been a, a stronger march, but the accelerant is really, most of that was, was um, one way um, broadcast data with a limited ability to, to coordinate at, at the speed of people typing back and forth. Um, fat, fat fingering it, essentially. Yeah, that's right, yep. Um, so the ability to like actually share sensor data, um, every platform we have have lots of sensors on them now, and they all stay on board the, the vehicle or the ship or the aircraft, um, except with, um, you know, dedicated, um, you know, hard typed data links that share only with other, you know, like terminals. Um, and then you eventually might be able to get to a gateway and share specific tracks or links, but it's a pretty slow and 99% um, of the data that, that could be useful just never sees the light of day really outside of the, the given platform that's got it. So this idea of, of every sensor, every effector, um, being able to share data could really change us. And as we shift from a force that's a counterinsurgency, counter irregular force centric in nature to being one focused on, um, you know, great power competition, near peer assets um, that are not close to CONUS, um, that, that's a pretty daunting set of military challenges. And I think the national security um, strategies uh, pretty clearly um, you know, denote the nature uh, of those challenges. Um, and so I think it brings a lot to the fight. Um, it, it can absolutely, you know, let the U.S. fight in a way that, that um, you know, other near peers just can't even comprehend at this point. They're catching up with, you know, the, the conventional way that we fight and have been fighting and, and they're not there yet, but they, you know, they've made progress. Um, but in this kind of you know challenging um, near tier, near peer competition, um, you know we we need to bring in a new variable, um, a new set of capabilities, and I think that that um, JADC two is is the way to get there. But conversely, if if that is um, you know the center of gravity, if you will, of a new way of of war fighting, of a new level of effectiveness, then of course it's going to be a target. Um, and so that idea of, of how do you secure um, the, the cloud infrastructure, the data flows, the endpoints that make all that possible. Um, and, and, and so if you need this to operate in the face of, of a near peer, then you need to have a cyber defense architecture um, and solution set that um, is designed and proven against that, that threat tier. So, you know, we use cyber threat profiles of specific nation state, what we call pacing threat actors right. to 
buying and test, and we keep those updated. And and you just have to sort of buy into the fact that um, that's you never say, I have a self-protection system and I don't need to worry about that again for several years, which is normally how we think about self-protection systems in traditional domains. So how do we need to envision the solution to this? Because as you as you said, we're on a very rapid evolutionary cycle where we're trying to go from a relatively fat-fingered approach to doing this to a much more automated way of doing it. And, and it, right, so, and there are a lot of pieces that go with that. What's the right approach to be using to, as you, as we design this architecturally to try to get us to that nirvana point, right? Because you also, uh, as, as senior leaders have, uh, have pointed out, right? I think, you know, Frank Kendall, Air Force, the Air Force Secretary has said this, right? We, we, we still have a lot of legacy, you know what I mean? We have legacy comms gear, uh, networks that, so this is more of an adaptation challenge as opposed to a, hey, we're going to, you know, sort of, you know, hit, hit, the, hit the reset button and kind of start from scratch. So, you know, so what's the right architectural mindset we need to get us to where we need to as efficiently as we can, understanding, as you pointed out, right? The more stuff you connect, the more opportunity for vulnerability exists in the system. The question is whether you can minimize those vulnerabilities to maximize the effects of having this kind of degree of interconnectivity. Right. So I think there's a couple of, of key principles there. Um, one of those is, is um, experimentation. And, and I think the DOD has um, specifically said, you know, talking to another senior leader um, who has, you know, a very senior leader at DOD that, that had personal experience with this, they felt that, that like the jitters um, acquisition of whatever it was, 15 years, was a cautionary tale for, for this right. area. That if the, you look- the joint tactical radio system that unfortunately was a painful exercise for everybody associated with it. Right. If you try to move to acquisition before um, technology, um, operational prototyping is, is farther enough along, then you can create a, a crazy amount of, of technical risk in, in solution space. Um, and so I think this idea of, you know, Heidi Shu is as the Undersecretary of Defense for R&E, who's been named the DOD CTO, understands and has been given this sort of mandate to do um, practical joint force experimentation that says, you know, let's, if we tried to say, let's just build the whole thing um, with the in-state in mind, that's, that's a really, really strategically risky thing to do because it assumes that we understand the opportunity space and the problem space you know, probably much better than we do. Instead, if we say, what do we want to accomplish with what set of, of platforms that would naturally work together for a given mission area? Um, let's go experiment. Let's see, you know, how we pass that information. How do we made it to the, the key platforms, the key warfighting platforms? Um, and then how do we um, secure that? And then we red team it. Um, then, then I think we can roll out increments of capability um, that we, we move more towards this, um, this natural section 804 middle tier of acquisition before we start moving into like major acquisition. I think that certainly um, DOD has understood that this is a different kind of beast as the JROC under General Hyten has issued um, several um, 
joint strategic directives from the JROC, which uh, that are um, that say here's what we're trying to accomplish and here's the key elements, and they're not you know it's rare that that the JROC issues things that are not tied to a specific weapon system um, or centered around a specific weapon system. So that idea of um, you know what they they issued on the information advantage JSD that said here's our principles here's our what well, the functionality we're, what we're trying to do here's our approach um, and then now now that that's stated and vetted with uh, command commanders and the services now let's start with you know mission focused um, joint technical experimentation let's try to get to um, like actual tactical outcomes using um, capability that we're mating into to different platforms to achieve it, then we learn from it and now we're ready to, to roll out a piece of that. I think that necessarily means that you sort of have sequencing of, of um, uh, blocks or, or um, really QRCs, quick reaction capabilities on a set of platforms at a time. Um, and then you sort of say that, okay, who's gonna own the, the infrastructure, the cloud infrastructure Who's going to own the connectivity, um, and then, and then who's going to be the the, the big defenders of that? I think um, DISA and NSA, with their zero trust architecture um, documents that they've put out and their thought in that place, you know, are 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 um, in the headspace of how do you build secure infrastructure? How do you defend it? Um, and and I think Cyber Command is in a, in a mature place where they can can defend it. Um, so, so there's a whole bunch of things that, that have to come together to think about, but th those are the key elements I would, I would posit. What are the outstanding challenges from your standpoint, right? Because on the one hand, we've, we've heard from, uh, again, I mean, mentioning Secretary Kendall in that, hey, look, we, we really start to, we really need to start moving forward quickly, right? Let's, we, we've experimented enough Right. I mean, when, when you're looking at this from a jet, you know, and that it's important for us to field capability and volume to the warfighter uh, at speed. Right. From from your perspective, how how much more experimentation and work is necessary on this? And, you know, and, and how close are we to sort of snapping a chalk line and being able to deliver uh, capability? Right. Because each of the services has been looking at this problem for some years now. Right. I mean, ABMS is, uh, you know is not a spring chicken any more than any other initiatives of each of the, of the services, right? Um, you know, how, how far away are we and, and where does, right? I mean, if, if you were the one making that investment, where would you be putting that investment in terms of additional capability to sort of get us there as quickly as possible? You know, so I would start with hard problems in a given mission area for, you know, the combatant commands have, have identified, you know, what do they think is the highest areas of military risk for the assigned um, op plans or con plans that they've been given. And they know the, the some specific areas where they think there is most risk. And I would choose a few of those and say, all right, what what set of assets do we need to work together to, to, to jump a capability or add a significant capability that changes the equation on this? And then I would think about capability sets for Right, that I'm going to roll out as a, a set. Um, you know, experimentation is a slippery word because you can spend an infinite amount of money and get zero capability at the end of that if you're not careful. Um, 
but I think we've we've had some you know experiment experience with um, you know Jaido where we got um, in in the counter um, IED fight where you know we lost an awful lot of lives. Um, that idea of of experiment rapidly, field rapidly, um, iterate rapidly. We know how to do that. I think it's that idea of solve a problem that's really important, iterate quickly, um, and then shift it into um, you know programs of record on a deliberate way. And and obviously that'll require us bringing um, Congress and other key stakeholders along on on a, a voyage that's new and will require sort of certainly mutual trust. One of, one of the criticisms of JANC2 is each of the services still sort of want to do their own thing, and, and we still haven't figured out a common way of sort of approaching how to, how to eat this element. I know that uh, General Kral is uh, working this very hard uh, in, in his own way, and a lot of very smart people are, and I think the intent is there from, from each of the services uh, as, as, as well. How much of this is cultural, and how much of this can you use technology to uh, address right. I mean, if if you if you if if you design the technology well, you can help drive the culture change, right? Talk talk to us a little bit about the yin and yang on this because I know culture change has been kind of an important, you know, a place where you've spent a lot of bandwidth thinking through, right? How do you make those cultural adjustments while at the same time, how do you drive the technology to help support the culture changes you need to make, right? How, 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 to, how to think about those two, two pieces and how are you guys thinking about that as, as you architect your, your approach uh, or, or your solution? Yeah, so I think we're, um, we're much more of a joint force than by far than when I, um, when I joined the military a long time ago. Um, and the more that we got you know, fighting together, the more, the less you know, cultural roadblocks there were. Um, the amount of, of sort of uh, the need for, for functionality to support actually how we fight together has just grown over time. Um, I think where, you know, what Northrop Grumman really brings is that we work with, with every service partner. We work with all the key agencies. We work with the key agencies in the IC. And so we see a lot of things that, that frankly, we just need to go, uh, you know, across to our other customers and go, there's some opportunity there um, and together say, are you interested in this? Cause I think based on what we are hearing from, from DOD and that they're, they're, they're giving us in guidance written and verbal that, that this is the kind of thing that could be done. So, you know, Northrop Grumman can play both sort of this very high end um, systems engineering expertise, but also this, this cross culture, cross organizational insight that allows us to do that. And so we've done, you know, multiple campaigns that are across the enterprise that help us um, demonstrate, you know, what's possible for, for, um, for, for a technology solution or a system of system solutions that, that sort of create outsized wins and capability increases. And so that's really what I see as the role of, of Northrop Grumman that we can contribute to helping to overcome some organizational boundaries, um, some, some bureaucratic problems that a lot of times, you know, there's just fences and you just, they don't hear what's going out or they don't know what's going outside of their organization beyond a certain level. Um, and so the more that we can help with that connectivity while having a really keen, technically focused idea of what's possible, what's feasible, 
What's the risk? What's the cost? I, I think that's a big way that Northrop Grumman can be a strong partner in, in sort of helping um, create these, these very promising capabilities. Data, you're, you're trying to bring a horse to water, right? And you may have all the best intentions of the world to bring that horse to the water, but the horse might not want the water, right? That's, that's, the, that's to me the fascinating part of it. I think everybody's got great ideas to try to help them. And yet you find this sort of reluctance to just get to the damn water, not to put too fine a point on it. Yeah, well, I think that that you know, there are agents of change in the DoD that have been handed, like Heidi Shu, that have been handed this problem and say, you know, solve this problem that and and don't and they're taken out of a role that they would have like parochial boundaries. Um, so, to the degree that the change agents are are identified, defined, and empowered, um, and then you know connect with us and and other you know Dib innovators. I think that's really, you know, a key way to to knock down um, some of the resistance. Of course, some of it will always be there, um, but I, I think that's that's valuable. Certainly, we've had some really good ongoing relationships with a couple of seniors that are in those kind of change agent roles um, that that we think are the best, hold the most promise for for overcoming the the many barriers to realizing this kind of really cross cutting kind of um, ambitious, uh, challenge. So what do you think is the realistic timescale to address this in, right? Is, is it five years, 10 years? Because if you, if you look at the light, light year transfer, you know, we're, we're still not as sophisticated as we need to be. Right. I mean, it's, it's not like in the movies, right. When, when we watch movies of the U S military, things are moving seamlessly and data is flying around. Uh, when, when, when it has a, a lot of really thoughtful people who are on chat rooms and texting and, you know, on, as you said, you know, you're, you're on the phone uh, a lot more than, than you would imagine. Um, how, what's the reasonable timescale here, right? As, as somebody who's been working this problem, working this problem on the cyber side, working this problem in uniform and now working in an industry. Is it, is it five years reasonable? Is, is 10 years more accurate? What's, what's the timescale we should bear in mind? You know, understanding that we want it as fast as we can. How fast is achievable from your perspective? What's interesting is that, that acquisition has sort of broken itself up into different approaches. And there is, you know, rapid acquisition organizations that I think could get you operational prototypes in six months and, and fully fielded sustained capability in 24 months. Um, but those would be focused um, with, a, with a limited number of platforms for a specific um, capability. But what that gets you is sort of um, the blueprints for the, the interfaces and the flows, right? It helps you solve the key technology challenges in a very architectural way that then lets you scale. Um, the, once you, you know, get past that point, now you're into what sort of the block cycle upgrade of, of different platforms. So, you know, things like, um, you know, UAVs, you know, you can go through an entire, you know, block cycle in 18 months. If you're talking, you know, a major surface combatant ship, then you're talking seven years. So um, it, it sort of, I think then it, then it gets down to platform by platform. But until you can say, you know, here's the interface control that I need you to have. Here's how you're going to share. 
Here's how you're going to publish and subscribe. Here's how you're going to interface. Here's the device. Um, and so you can give them to that. Then not, you know, the non-recurring engineering doesn't even start. Um, so, so then you get sort of a phased implementation based on, on, on platform acquisition cycles, I think. And, and do we have the, and the last question I would ask is, do we have the data piece of this, right? I think it's ironic that I'm asking a guy whose call sign is data about whether we have the data piece of this right. Do we have the data piece of this right? Um, so, so that's a really complex question. Um, so some of it's relatively easy where we are just taking um, things that, you know, there's a whole bunch of Link 16 um, um, data standards that that are strongly typed, that are very expansive. And so we, you're gonna use data that's already described um, formally and typed. That stuff's pretty easy to roll out and there's quite a bit of it. Where you start to get, um, where it gets hard is data that we've not before published through traditional data links or, or IBS broadcasts or similar things. Now you're, you know, you, you're really back into um, new data dictionaries. And when you start talking about raw data, um, that's when that's, you sort of have to go application by application. And the first thing that, that you know, um, data science leading to AI ML applications is that, you know, um, noisy or unstructured data is worse than no data in most cases. So right. um, that's a whole nother, you know, challenge, but the good thing about weapon systems is that, that that far more than enterprise applications, they tend to have pretty, you know, defined and structured data. Um, but when you start bringing in broader platforms in the broadest sense of the word, um, then then that's each one of those becomes its own project to tackle. Thanks, Vago. I really appreciate it. It's been a great time. From cyberspace to outer space. Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.